Hi, and welcome to the abstract for the August 2017 episode of Normal Science Podcast. Uh, I think we have a really great show for you today. We start off with our introduction and get some exciting news from DBEC. In our materials and methods, we get into a paper on how water hydrogen bonds with DNA molecules, and we talk about a paper that looks into the geographic variation of cannibalism in damselfly larvae. In our discussion, Dbeck talks uh, about chirality, uh, and then things get a little crazy, uh, but I think it's fun. Uh, it's a good time. And then in our acknowledgments, it's a bit long this month, but that's because we uh, talk about some really fun things uh, and activities and uh, activities and stuff that well, we've been watching and getting up to. So uh, with that, let's get started. All right, welcome to the introduction for our August 2017 episode of Normal Science Podcast. Uh, as always, this is John Turbot, a graduate student in biology at University of Kentucky. And with me is Dan Beckett, a chemistry graduate student at Indiana University. Uh, and I'm excited because it's been a while since I've talked to, to Dan. So how's it going, Dan? It's going good. Living the life. That's, living the dream. Yeah. Yeah, so in our introduction, we like to do just a, a quick update on how our, our research is going. So my August has been kind of crazy. I've been out doing field collections. So I've been working on this project to try and quantify the resin content of different uh, pine species. And to do that's required me to just sort of be driving around from like Florida up to Wisconsin. And just a little over a week ago, I finally finished that up and now... I'm starting a bunch of extractions along with an uh, undergraduate assistant, and so been pretty busy, uh, but uh, hopefully we'll get some good data and something interesting. How about yourself, Mr. Beckett? How's, how's your research life going? So I've got like the last two and a half weeks, we've been trying to get uh, this paper um, right, ready to be published that we were like, oh yeah, it's ready. And then uh, my advisor read it, and he, he find, you know he's one of those guys who kind of looks at things critically, like the moment it's time to submit it. So like then oh, yeah. he like looks at it, and it's like oh this, yeah we we gotta do it this way. So I had to do extra stuff, and <laughs> then I bring that in. And he's like oh you know what this looks like crap now. Now we gotta try this, and I do that. And so now all that stuff's done. Gave the last final draft to him. He looked at. It, he was like okay you can submit this. And so I was going to submit it today, but we're recording this podcast, so I'm going to submit it tomorrow. And all right. Hopefully. <laughs> It gets accepted, so we're, I'm, I'm excited. It's my second first author paper, yeah. so I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, that's great to hear. Congrats on uh, getting your second paper submitted, and congrats to the podcast for delaying the progress of science by one day. So. <laughs> we're already having an impact on the yeah. scientific world of <laughs> a whole day delaying a paper. So not, a, I guess, a positive <laughs> impact, actually, but hey. Uh, but that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. It's good to hear that you're finally you're uh, were able to get that finished up, and I'm sure there'll be no problems. All all the reviewers will come back and say this is this is the greatest paper we've ever read. Hopefully, this is brilliant. It's, we're we're kind of we're kind of shooting kind of high for this one. So, yeah. oh cool. It, it's it, it's it's physical it's physical chemistry chemical physics, which is like a RCS Royal Chemical Society journal. It's kind of finicky, okay. so they're known yeah. for being really selective and. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. It, I think it'll be fine. But yeah, if it's not, right. there's there's another one that we have in mind that's also yeah. a good journal. Yeah. 
That's yeah. I believe in you. <laughs> All right. So uh, I think that'll do it for introduction and. All right, so we're in materials and methods. Uh, in materials and methods, uh, Dbeck and I both present a paper that we found, an open access paper, and just sort of discuss what they did, what they found, and why it's important. So uh, for uh, for this episode, what do you got for us, uh, Mr. Beckett? Oh, you're making me go first. Oh, yeah, you're going oh. first this time. Oh, shoot. <laughs> All right. Let me take care of this. So, okay, so... My uh, um, my paper is from the American Chemical Society Central Science Journal, which is like a, uh, um, I think it's like pretty new, like it's like a, a year year old like imprint where they make things open access if they think that they have a um, wide impact. Um, so this this might be the first paper that we're reviewing that has like a uh, kind of sexy title, or at least I think it's a sexy title. Um, it's called. DNA's chiral spine of hydration. Ooh, that is uh, that is a pretty sexy title. You got me short, interested. Short, the title. sweet. Yeah. So, it, the, the the if you know what those words mean, then the the whole the whole idea is kind of encompassed there, um, and and there's not much else beyond that. But the the science behind how they got there and and what it means is, is a little complicated. So. Um, what they did was they did this experiment called some frequency generation spectroscopy. So spectroscopy is, is, is any time that you're shooting a uh, light or a laser at uh, something, um, usually a molecule or a gas or a mixture of stuff. Um, and so there, you, what the different types of spectroscopy can be defined by what, type of light you're shooting at it. So if you're shooting visible light, which is, you know, red, blue, green, or if you're shooting infrared light, which is of a longer wavelength and less energetic than visible light, and that's heat, or if you're shooting ultraviolet light, um, and you get different effects based on what type of light that you're shooting at your uh, um, target. And so in, the, in a lot of cases, people will do what's called IR spectroscopy, which is infrared spectroscopy, where you shoot the, the low energy infrared light and that triggers vibrations that corresponds to what are called vibrational excited states, which is when, like say if you have a water molecule, because that's kind of what we're going to talk about. If you have a water molecule, when you fire infrared light at it, if it hits a certain frequency, it'll cause the OH bond and the water molecule to stretch. And then it'll fire off a photon of the same of the same frequency that's released as it relaxes down and stops stretching. And so that's what infrared spectroscopy is. Uh, visible spectroscopy, um, which you know is happening all the time when we bring something outside and see colors come off, is whether or not light of a certain visible wavelength is absorbed or reflected. And so everything we see okay. that has color corresponds to what stuff isn't absorbed by it, what comes off and is reflected off. And so that always corresponds to electrons jumping up and becoming excited and going into different orbits, orbitals around the molecule. And the reason I have to explain all these things 
is because some frequency generation spectroscopy is where you're doing both of those at the same time. And so what you're doing is you're taking visible light at a constant wavelength. Um, so say, you know, 440 nanometers, or you take like green light and you fire it at, at your target and you hold that constant. And then you have an infrared beam that you can change the wavelength of. And so you have those two things together and you're changing the infrared uh, wavelength to get a different spec, the infrared spectrum of your molecule, which is where, what wavelengths of light it absorbs, which corresponds to vibrations. Um, and then the output beam that comes out is the sum, the wavelength of that is the sum of the two wavelengths of light that came in to begin with. Um, and same with, you know, same with frequencies, the frequency of light that comes in, the frequency of the light that comes out. So the reason you do this is because it's really selective. And because when you, when you fire in uh, a visible beam and an infrared beam at the same time, and you're measuring, you have a detector set up to, measure, to look for photons that correspond to the sum of those two wavelengths, you won't see it happen in any case where there's something called inversion symmetry, which is just where like, if you, if you have a dot that you put into the middle of your image or whatever you care about, and you take everything and switch it around that dot that's in the middle, switch it around the origin. Okay, so is, is that like a bilateral symmetry or do you mean like rotate it around the dot in the center? Uh, like bilateral symmetry. So like, okay, like cool. just like, like when you, uh, if you were to, if you were to stick a dot in the center or something and suck everything in to the center and then it comes out the other side. Okay, cool. So if something's on the left, now it's on the right. Something's on the right, now it's on the left. Okay. If it's the same thing, then you know that has inversion symmetry. It has that type of symmetry. And we're going yeah. to talk about symmetry in the discussion. Cool. Um, but if it has that type of symmetry, then some frequency generation spectroscopy, um, it just won't work. You won't, get, you won't be able to detect... Um, the output um, and that has a lot to do with just the way these types of spectroscopies work and the way that the output beam that should be um, the sum of the two wavelengths it won't come out correctly if it has inversion symmetry and so that means that a, a lot more things than you think have inversion symmetry and so this is useful because you can probe surfaces and interfaces like where water meets air in like a glass of water instead of probing the bulk of the solution the stuff you know, way down below the surface. And so what they did here was they just took uh, DNA um, and they took like just a chunk of it, no specific sequence or anything. Um, well, they did do a specific sequence, but it doesn't matter what, what the sequence was. And they had it in water with salt, a certain salt concentration to correspond to, you know, being in a biological environment. Yep. And then they did some frequency generation spectroscopy on it. They shot in a visible light and they scanned the infrared mm -hmm. spectrum. And what they were able to ascertain from this is that water, everyone knows that, um, well, it, it, it's known that water forms a shell around things that are in it. Right. Um, and that's what solvation is, is that water forms a shell around it. And, and usually we think of it as kind of ordered. We don't think of it as forming a, a specific, like, I can predict exactly where each single water molecule is around my thing kind of order. But we know that within three angstroms, you're this likely to find a water 
Yeah. And then within six angstroms, you're this likely to find another water mm -hmm. and so on. And it forms these shells. Um, and so what they were able to find by doing this is they're able to, for the first time, really, no one's ever been able to, um, when you do infrared spectroscopy, you don't have enough selectivity. Um, they're able to look at the exact binding of water around the DNA. Okay. Um, and they do this by changing the angle of the polarization of the light. So like how the light comes in, how the wave is moving corresponding to where it's coming in into the plane, what they call the plane of incidence, which is just where it hits the sample. Mm -hmm. And if you were to draw a plane parallel to the sample, how it hits that plane. And so if the light is polarized, so it's 45 degrees. So if you, if you draw like a wave with your finger, if it's 45 degrees um, rotated to that plane, uh, that's what they did. And so they, they took and made the visible light beam 45 degrees rotated one way and then 45 degrees rotated the other way. And what that does is they took the, it rotated 45 degrees one way and subtracted it from the other 45 degrees and they got a signal that way. And what happens when you do that is you're probing something that's chiral. And when you're probing, okay. and so chirality corresponds to, to when something is a mirror image of, of something else. And so, you know, your hands are chiral. So if you take your hands and you put them in front of you with the backs facing you, you look and you see the thumb is facing the thumb and the pinky's, face, the pinky's on the opposite side. And those are mirror images of each other. If they weren't chiral, you would be able to take your right hand and flip it over and put it on top of your left hand and they'd look exactly the same. Yeah. Except what you're looking at is you're looking at the, the, the front of your right hand and the back of your left hand because the fronts and backs of our hands are different. If the fronts and backs of our hands were the same, then I could stick it on top and these are the exact same thing. And so I could just rotate my right hand to be the, exactly the same as my left hand. Yeah. But I can't, they're two separate things. And so that's what we'll talk about in the discussion. It's kind of like different molecules are chiral and what that means mm -hmm. and why it's important for chemistry and, and, yeah. and life. But chirality just corresponds to when you can't superimpose something on top of each other. So your hands are chiral and molecules are often chiral. Um, now, I know DNA is known to have a certain spin to it that would make it chiral by its nature. I can't remember if it's a right-handed or a left-handed spin off the top of my head. But you're saying the chirality they found, I guess, with its relationship to water was novel? Yeah, so what, what they found was, was they, what they did was they took the infrared light they were looking at the specific wavelengths of light that correspond to the OH stretch of water. Mm -hmm. So that high, that H stretch, oh, the H coming away from the oxygen coming back. Mm -hmm. And previously we've talked about hydrogen bonding and I can kind of explain it again really quickly is that yeah. it's when hydrogen bonds to something and if it's oxygen or nitrogen or fluorine, these are really electronegative elements, which means they would really like to have that electron, this hydrogen only has one electron and one proton, and that one electron comes down closer to the nitrogen and oxygen. It's more likely to be found down there, mm -hmm. and the opposite end becomes more positive. Yep. And when when that end becomes more positive, it can form things that aren't chemical bonds, but are much stronger than other interactions that happen that aren't chemical bonds, 
with things that like say if a, uh, in this case like a phosphate group which is a phosphorus with oxygens decorating it mm -hmm. the oxygens will have a lot of electron density mm -hmm. a lot of electrons around the edge of it and the hydrogen on the water will be very positive on the opposite end of right. where the oxygen is bonded to is mm -hmm. it'll form what's called a hydrogen bond where it becomes ordered when a hydrogen bond is occurring in an infrared spectrum is that if you were to look at say the OH stretch when there's no hydrogen bond happening versus when there is a hydrogen bond happening you find that there's what's called a redshift where it becomes less energetic when a hydrogen bond happens okay. and the wavelength of light becomes longer and the reason that happens is because you're looking at that initial OH bond the chemical OH bond not the mm -hmm not the hydrogen bond. Okay. And when the hydrogen bond happens, the stronger it is, the closer that hydrogen wants to be to the other oxygen. Mm -hmm. And the closer it wants to be to the other oxygen, the more it weakens the chemical bond. The OH bond, the OH chemical bond in the water. Mm -hmm. And the weaker that gets just through the harmonic oscillator and mm -hmm. and how springs work, mm -hmm. you are lengthening that bond. And that becomes less energetic. And so what they found was when they did the chiral spectroscopy, they found a redshift compared to the non-chiral spectroscopy. So when they just did the normal sum frequency generation, SFG mm -hmm. experiment, and they weren't rotating their beam with mm -hmm. respect to the, to the plane of incidence just right and subtracting each other to get the chiral signal mm -hmm. that only corresponds to things that are chiral, they found that it was redshifted compared to when they don't do that. Okay. And what that means is that there's hydrogen bonds forming. Yeah. And so it's it's really it's and so you can find they, they make these plots and and show exactly what what that corresponds to. But it's really interesting to think about like how spectroscop how spectroscopists do research because you know this one thing can happen this one result, and so ha seeing. A redshift when you're looking at that OH region, which always corresponds to water, they're looking at that specific stretch that corresponds to water. They see that when you're looking at the chiral stretch, it's showing a hydrogen bond, showing more hydrogen bonds than when you're looking at the non-chiral stretch. And so that means that there is a chiral backbone of waters oh. going around the DNA. Okay. And to answer your question, the reason it's chiral is just because if something's a spiral, mm -hmm. it's always chiral. Mm -hmm. And that's a rhyme. But um, <laughs> it's uh, it's just like whenever something has three-dimensional stru structure, like a front and a back and a left and a right that are different, right. then it will always be chiral. Yeah. If it's two-dimensional, then it's not chiral. I can, if, I have, if I draw any drawing on a piece of paper and flip it over. So DNA has a major and a minor groove. Mm -hmm. So it's a double helix, and we have these two strands that, that, that nest into each other. And then we have those, those bridges that happen where the residues interact yeah. um and so you have that those nice pegs that link them do you think it'd be helpful to real quick just go over the sort of general structure of what makes a dna molecule and i know you, you kind of did that there but just so the residues uh those are the nucleotides so if you hear about a dna sequence that's what biologists are sequencing but they're contained within this spiral that uh 
that Dan Beckett's talking about in that spiral, the backbone that the nucleotides are on is, is a sugar phosphate backbone. So there's a phosphate group, and then that's connected to some sort of sugar. In DNA's case, it's deoxyribose. I'm hoping that helps, like, maybe start to visualize it for, for the, the listeners a little better. So in DNA, there's, there's a sugar backbone, and then you have the nucleotides, which are the things you care yeah. about, which are the letters. Yeah. Um, which you have G, T, A, like that. Those are all the letters. And so the nucleotides bind to each mm-hmm. other on each opposite strand. Mm-hmm. And so whenever you see, like in Jurassic Park, when the DNA molecule is talking to you, it's got, right, it's a DNA molecule. Yeah, yeah, it's like Mr. DNA or something like yeah, that. Yeah, when Mr. DNA is talking, the, <laughs> the purple bits, the, 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 thing, the pegs connecting him are yeah. the nucleotides. Yeah. And so if you take Mr. DNA um, and look at him, there's a major groove and a minor groove. And mm-hmm. what that means is that if you look at kind of where, usually when DNA, when you're looking at DNA, there's there's one one side of it that looks a lot wider than the other side, because mm-hmm. you can draw a line along what you're looking at and follow that spiral one way, mm-hmm. and then you can draw a line on the opposite side and follow the spiral the other way, mm-hmm. and so one way, each individual nucleotide and each sugar is further away from one strand than I. It's further away, but the distance is, is larger. Excuse me. The distance is longer between the two strands, whereas if you pick the opposite side, the distance is shorter between the two strands because mm-hmm. they're kind of hitting each other on, like, the hips that, yeah. that come out, the, the, the bumps. So what they found was that the, the, it's, it's been known since, you know, the 50s with Rosalind Franklin and everything mm-hmm. that uh, the major groove is, like, 11 angstroms, um, mm-hmm. which is 10 to the minus 10 meters. And the minor groove is about six angstroms or 5.7 angstroms. And so what they were able to find out through these experiments was that along the minor groove, they found just by comparing the different peaks and figuring out what's where, they're able to show that in the minor groove, there's much stronger hydrogen bonding happening than in the major groove. And, w- and what this corresponds to is if the minor groove is 5.7 angstroms long, if you take water and it forms like a nice little triangle, if you look at that distance between the two hydrogens, which is the longest distance of water, that's about three ang- 3.2 angstroms. Um, and so if you set that 3.2 angstrom thing inside a 5.7 angstrom gap, um, that extra uh, 2.5 angstroms corresponds to the length of hydrogen bonds. So it, it fits just perfectly, and it's, it's really beautiful the way that the, the water will sit inside that groove, and the, there will be a hydrogen bond happening between one hydrogen and one of the phosphate group oxygens on one side mm-hmm. of the strand, and then one on the other side, of, on the other strand. And so it fits in just perfectly so that one is on one side and one's on the other side. And they go down and they, they have a model. They did some molecular mm-hmm. dynamics. They have a model where they're showing just a perfect little line of waters going down <laughs> the entire groove. And they think that they've proven that this is true based on these experiments Yeah. Um, by showing that well, when I look at the minor groove, I have 
really, really strong evidence of moderate hydrogen bonds, which are relatively strong hydrogen bonds, compared to when I look at the major groove, I don't see as strong of hydrogen bonds because that's 11 angstroms long. So there's a lot of water molecules that can fit into there. And mm -hmm. so, well, not a lot, like two or three. And mm -hmm. if there's a couple waters that can fit in there, then there's some order because the ones on the edge will hydrogen bond, but water likes to form little clusters and networks yeah. within itself. And so that's what will happen in the major groove. When well, the minor groove, it forms this perfect little line of waters. And so, yeah, so that they can, they can show that by doing the chiral experiment and looking at only things that are chiral, since water, I, I, I didn't mention this, but water's achiral, water's yeah. not chiral, because if I take, take it and look at it and I have a mirror image, it's, they're exactly the same, they're perfectly symmetric. So why is it that they they see evidence for this this uh, nifty hydrogen bonding when it's chiral? Uh, they're doing the chiral version, but not when they are just doing like regular like where's the, is there hydrogen bonding? What's going on with it? So when they're when so so what's happening when they're doing the the chiral experiment is that mm -hmm. they're subtracting the two signals from each other. Okay. Um, and so when you're doing the achiral experiment. Um, it's not like the things that are chiral won't show up. Yeah. So everything will show up. Okay. So if they look at the OH stretch, they'll see the OH stretch of everything. Oh, okay. Um, that has an OH. Yeah. But when you do the chiral experiment, you're only looking at things that are chiral. Okay. And so when you're only looking at things that are chiral for the OH stretch, the only thing that you could possibly be measuring mm -hmm. would be waters that are along the backbone of the DNA. Otherwise, you because all the other waters in solution, none of them are chiral. Yeah. So if you're looking at that specific water stretch, seeing a hydrogen bond there corresponds to something that's chiral yeah. is forming a hydrogen bond. And through some other measurements, you can prove that it's yeah. along the minor groove. Yeah. So when they're doing the achiral um, measurements, they're getting the the evidence for a hydrogen bond of the chiral stuff, but it's getting washed out by all the other OH bonds that aren't doing that so it kind of just washes out to a general fuzz yes yeah. yeah exactly the signal it would be slightly you know red shifted compared to like if i were to take the infrared spectrum of a single water molecule in a vacuum right. which is impossible <laughs> but if i could it's red shifted compared to that but just a little bit but yeah. since i'm i'm measuring if i'm doing the achiral experiment i've got I'm not selecting for any specific waters. Yeah. And so I'm actually measuring the spectrum of hundreds of millions of waters. Right. But when I do the chiral experiment, I've narrowed that down to maybe, you know, a thousand waters mm -hmm. that I'm responding. And so then those thousand waters are the ones that are along the backbone of the DNA and forming this spiral. That's cool. um, and so if you take the DNA out of the picture, mm -hmm. the water is just forming the spiral by itself. Yeah. Um, and so this is really, really nifty because we, we've known that water forms spheres around things. Well, not spheres. It, form, it, it forms this kind of loose order around things. And you measure them with these things called like radial distribution functions where you're like, it's 60% likely that I'll find a water within five angstroms of this point. And you can look at spikes in the radial distribution function and say, okay, so I know it's likely that something's here. In this case, it's been known that when you take and dehydrate DNA, Mm -hmm. and remove the water from around it that it gets wider yeah 
and goes from like a B form to an A form. Yeah. And there's like a Z form. I don't yep. really know much about this stuff. Yeah, no, neither do I, but I was about to ask. <laughs> so I'm glad you're bringing it up. Yeah, I don't I don't know much about like like the different I, I just know that it gets wider. Yeah. And that the minor group gets wider. Mm-hmm. Um and so one of the and so it's been it's been known that and a lot of things are this way that mm-hmm. when I put them in water they look different than when yeah. I take them out of water. And that's a major problem in my field specifically when you're trying to model things. This could be one of the reasons why when you take DNA out of water that the minor groove gets wider. Yeah. Because the water that is kind of holding it together and contracting it by forming these hydrogen bonds yeah. is no longer there. And so <laughs> maybe it kind of flattens out more because it gets taken out. And yeah. one of the, another reason this is important is because of, of drugs. Yeah. If I want to have drugs and things that that interact with DNA specifically, mm-hmm. I have to deal with this pesky line of waters along the minor groove. Yeah. Whereas maybe it'd be better if I were targeting the major groove, where it's a much more loosely knit contingent of waters. Yeah. Whereas along the minor groove, I have this perfect line. Yeah. And from, from what um, I recall, a lot of uh, enzymes and proteins that interact with DNA, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, are, are known to be using the major groove. Like the minor groove, having something go there is not super common and so this this probably helps explain why there's this water shield <laughs> and so proteins just like i'll go to the major groove <laughs> yeah so it's possible that that that's one of the reasons why there's selectivity obviously yeah. a lot a lot more experiments have to happen yeah. and you know that's kind of the theme of the podcast is yeah. that this is one step but this is kind of a cool step yeah that they're showing that it's in, this is the first time i think that anyone's shown that there's that the water has order within the minor groove and that it's perfectly in there. Yeah, no, that's that's wild. Like, I'm, I'm wanting to go talk to people about this. Like, did you hear? Like, this seems almost as important as the rest of DNA search. <laughs> There's a water so, ring. <laughs> there will be really, really cool. Um, I think there's been some molecular dynamics calculations, but there will yeah. be some, like, dope theory that comes out of this. Yeah. Um, someone's going to... So someone probably saw this already and is, is working on it, but I oh, thought yeah. about it, do, doing it like just it's like taking and putting waters in and looking at that. And it could be there's not a lot in my specific field that you can do with it, yeah. but like in a close field, you can do some really cool stuff with it. Yeah. So actually the, the my next door neighbor lab people, <laughs> they, they, they do the type of stuff that would apply to this. Oh, cool. So, um, it's pretty neat. Yeah. No, that's that's really wild. That's. And it, it, it's funny because I think when we talked about hydrogen bonding and uh, I think one of the pilot episodes, we talked about how important all these weird hi- the hydrogen bonds are to the weird properties of water and how important water is to biology. And, and this is just another case of where water's just making biology do what we know biology to do. So it's really cool. <laughs> water's great. <laughs> yeah water is super cool yeah uh do you have anything else you want to talk about with that paper uh no okay i think uh, yeah i think i think i got about all of it okay um and this is also this was another uh collaborative thing yeah. too so there are people in cornell doing the experiments and people in notre dame doing some simulations and some other experiments so um it's always useful to do collaborative science yeah so uh, for this episode, I've got this paper from BMC Evolutionary Biology. 
Uh, it's from back in July, and its title is Cannibalism and Activity Rate in Larval Damselflies Increase Along a Latitudinal Gradient as a Consequence of Time Constraints. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so if uh, if you're unfamiliar with what a damselfly is, uh, you probably know what a dragonfly is. And if you've seen, like, the thinner dragonfly-looking things that kind of look a little different, those are those are damselflies. So they tend to be a little smaller, and they hold their wings a little differently, but otherwise they... So, like, like the back part's longer and thinner, and they, like, show up in pools a lot? Yeah, they do, they do show up... Um, and and uh, the the key thing is so dragonflies hold their wings uh, like out to the side when they're resting. Damselflies ha- are hold them up above their backs, and so that's the main way uh, to tell the difference between the two. Uh, so if you see a dragonfly and it's holding its wings above its back, there's a good chance that it's a it's actually a damselfly. Um, but they're pretty similar, same order and everything. Uh, so they're pretty closely related. Uh, insect groups. So what they were looking at is how often cannibalism is occurring in uh, a specific species of damselflies, Lestis sponga. And they were looking at how it varies, um, you know, up up along a latitudinal climb. So they referenced this theory that predation is greater in lower latitudes, and lower latitudes means closer to the equator. So so you... You said climb. Yeah. I know what that means because you gave a presentation here once and you had, you had to explain it to me. Yeah. But let's pretend I forgot what what's what's a climb. Um, a a climb is just sort of a parameter along which things can vary. So usually you'll hear latitudinal climb because it's just talking about it varying along latitude. So from equator to pole, something could be varying along that climb. But you could have you know like a temperature climb, so, you know, an area where it's hot to cold, and it's a climb. So any sort of geographic area that's varying in some way is a climb. So a climb has to be geographic, and so it's, it's like, if you're more mathematically minded, it's like saying something's a gradient? Yeah, so it doesn't have to be uh, geographic, but it's just, you, you'll usually hear it in reference to, like, a, a latitudinal Cline or gradient, but yeah, it's just a gradient uh, continuum along which things can vary. So, predations shown uh, both theoretically and, and through experiments, uh, just general predation, things eating each other, is greater the closer to the equator, and that kind of makes sense because it's warmer, there tends to be more stuff running around, when you have more stuff, there's you know more opportunities for you to eat each other. But they they wanted to look at how cannibalism is varies along latitude, and cannibalism is different than regular predation because it's occurring within the same species. And since it's occurring within the same species, you have um, you know the pros of just general predation of you know increased nutrients which allow you to grow better, but you also get the added benefit of you're reducing competitors, and so that's also helping your growth. But you also have some cons. Uh, to it and so you could become cannibalized yourself you know when you go to eat something it could overpower you and then you're eaten um if you're related to the individual you're eating your inclusive fitness is decreased so in biology you generally want to help things that are closely related to you uh, because they share you know certain amount of genes on average and so you're helping your genes fitness if they're doing better and you're doing better 
Um, and then the other thing is uh, if you're attacking a, something that's the same species as you, you're going to have a greater risk of pathogen or parasite transmission since you're going to be having the same sorts of diseases. And so, um, like pretty much anything in biology, uh, I just thought this line was kind of funny because it's, it's, I've, I've used a similar one. Uh, it's thought to be more common when benefits are greater than the costs. Um, that's just the, in biology, you expect things to happen when benefits exceed costs. Uh, and, and like I said, I've, I've written stuff like that too, so it's just funny that it happens. Um, and so then in the introduction, they just talk about sort of the contributors to cannibalism. So they focus, a lot of previous stuff that they talk about is focused on sort of biotic factors. So difference in size, if you're bigger than the, you know, other organism, you're more likely to gonna eat it. If you're in a high density situation, so there's a lot of you running around, you're gonna encounter each other more, so cannibalism is, might be increased. If there's low uh, resource availability of other things to eat, then you're gonna probably do it. But what they were looking at is an abiotic factor in seasonality and looking at how that um, uh, allows an organism to know there's a time constraint so specifically, if this is an organism with a one-year life cycle, time constraints are going to be more important. So when you say abiotic, what, what do you mean? Right. So biotic means some factor that's uh, related to another living creature, while abiotic is a factor related to the non-living world. So you know, mineral content of the soil is more of an abiotic factor, uh, obviously, you know, other organisms can affect that, but primarily, you know, the amount of limestone in an area is not contingent on, you know, how many oak trees are in an area. The oak trees are more going to be based off of that, if anything. So abiotic is things like that, you know, how much sun things are getting, rain, temperature, that sort of thing. And so they're saying that, you know, that since they're looking at variation in latitude of cannibalism, then since the, the the duration of seasons changes mm -hmm. um, as you increase latitude or decrease latitude, yep. that they're looking at how long or short different seasons are. And since those mean things to the insects, what, what that, what that does. Yeah, exactly. And they, and they do say that this is, is going to be most pronounced in an organism that has a one year life cycle um, as an, as an obligate or required factor. So, you know, an organism that's able to, like, grow for a while and then, like, winter comes and it's able to, like, chill out over winter and then keep growing the next year and it can be flexible, it's not going to be as impacted by this sort of seasonality factor. But this damselfly has a one-year life cycle. So ones in the north have a shorter summer. Presumably they're able to detect that and they know that they're more constrained on time. They need to get to... Uh, their adult stage faster uh, so they can, um, in this group, they overwinter as eggs so they can come out, mate, lay eggs, and then die, and then the eggs can hatch in the spring. And so the hypothesis going in was this time constraint factor is going to be important, so you're going to see greater cannibalism in northern populations. And the question they wanted to address is, is that a sort of genetic factor? So are they evolving to be obligately more cannibalistic in the north, or is it more of an induced thing? And so to get at that, they did a combination of a sort of common garden experiment where they collected damselflies from across a region and put them all in the same conditions and saw, did some eat more, eat each other more than others. And the, uh, and then 
just simulated natural conditions, so collected them and then made them think they were in their, still had approximately the same area. So to get these uh, populations, they collected at three latitudes. So in France was the southern population, Poland was sort of a central population, and then northern Sweden was the northern population. And they got from two lakes at each of those as sort of a, a technical replicate in a way. And then they talk about the specifics of, um, they were collecting eggs here. So they, you know, give them for a few days or a couple weeks, you know, a consistent sort of summery light and day cycle and uh, nice temperatures. And then they drop it to winter for uh, 28 days. And then they bring it up to sort of a springy light, dark cycle and temperature to induce the hatching. And each of the different regions had a slightly different times to hatch. But uh, what they did for this common garden experiment, so this is the first one they did, they took all the latitude batches, so all the ones from the north, all the ones from central, and all the ones from the south, and then they pulled those into groups uh, and then split them into 10. So 10 uh, from the north among all egg batches, uh, 10 from uh, central, and 10 from the south uh, of hatchlings. Uh, and so there wasn't any sort of regularity in how related they are. So there could be, you know, um, you know, 10 different, from 10 different batches, the hatchlings for this. Um, they fed them twice a day for 14 days, and then they reduced it to three times a week. And they counted basically how many individuals there were or, you know, dead, uh, half-eaten bodies every four days. And, uh, and then they compared days, uh, 26 and 42 for the stats and uh, they found that all the deaths were from extrinsic factors so they weren't from like the hatchling having an internal like genetic defect that caused them to like right. die all of a sudden and so what they found with this common garden one is more or less every the cannibalism rates were pretty much the same when they were all sort of kept around the same temperature uh, and nice light dark cycle. Uh, south and north were a little more cannibalistic than central, but uh, overall it, w it wasn't as much as uh, you'll see later in the simulated conditions. So there was an effect of temperature, of time and latitude uh, on it, but there wasn't an interaction. So in this first experiment, what they did was they had five sets they had the the three from different latitudes and the, the two from the same lakes or from different lakes within the same latitudes and they had those populations and had them all on the same conditions and then saw that the the amount was about the same yes they got from two lakes at each of the latitudes and then they basically pooled all the eggs together as they hatched and then split them into groups of 10 Oh, okay. Yeah. So it wasn't like those were control. I understand yeah. now. So they had so they had three groups then, I guess. Yeah, and multiple sets. And then um, they ba they did twenty five replicates for the central and southern. So twenty five groups of ten for central and southern, and then they did fifty mm -hmm. for the north. Um, so then what this what this part tells us then is that there's no like inclination for cannibalism based on factors of where they have come from like 
history. Yeah. Or we were, we were like last podcast, you, you had a term, I think, for like this preference or uh, genetic predisposition based on. So, yeah, what they end up concluding from this is they didn't find evidence of, yeah, exactly, a genetic predisposition, genetic factors having a strong impact. Because if they did, they would expect um, to see one of those groups to be, you know, like the, the northern population to be just like highly cannibalistic because it's involving in, a, in an area where it would be more necessary. And, you know, to double check on this, though, they went and did a follow-up experiment with a similar sort of uh, collection process. So, you know, two regions, north, south, and central. Um, they collected the eggs, but then they treated the eggs sort of in a simulated natural environment. So they, after they induced winter um, and then went back to induce spring to induce hatching, they basically had it progress as though it were normal seasons in the areas they got. And so every week the light-dark cycle would shift accordingly and the temperature would increase or decrease. And... Once again, uh, they fed them for two weeks, twice a day, reduced it to three times a week, and looked at cannibalism rates. And for this, they did see the North was way more cannibalistic than central populations, which was more po cannibalistic than the South. And what was really cool is the time. Um, so in the earlier experiment, there was more cannibalized later, which kind of makes sense. In this, again, there was more cannibalized later, but that effect of time was actually more pronounced in the north and central populations, so there was an interaction effect. So as time went on and they were more constrained, they had less time in the season to grow, they got more cannibalistic than they were prior. So, so in, in this case, they took and replicated the, the way that the season... The, the seasonal change in the light-dark cycle that you'd see in the south, central, and north regions, and the central and north ones, those ramped up compared to the control yeah. original set. Yeah, and the north really ramped up, I just want to say. Like, it's like, so, they do, so they do have a disposition for it. It's just they need a trigger. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they know that this is an issue. Uh, that makes It would be interesting to see if like they took the uh and just did like the north light dark cycle for all three sets yeah so that's one thing that uh I, I also wrote in my notes that i wish they had done um which they you know this is already probably a lot of time and stuff but yeah so uh, across oh, yeah this across, is this is hard to do across fostering things so where they have like north conditions for the three populations and that's what they'd need to do to really rule out uh, genetic predisposition so they didn't find evidence for it but to really rule it out they'd need to go and do a third one where they do uh, you know north in the three conditions it's possible the 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 southern guys are are laid back and don't understand the time is of the essence yeah. they need to eat their friends yeah because like they don't get it yeah so well, it's you know. it's funny you mentioned sort of being laid back because the third thing they did uh is they basically took the extra hatchlings they had uh, after they split them into their groups of 10, and they put them in individual things, and uh, along the bottom of the this, the, when they were measuring it, there was a two centimeter by two centimeter grid, and they basically just looked at how much they moved around. And for this, they, were, they did uh, like the uh, common garden, light, dark cycle and temperature, and then the simulated natural conditions. And in this case, the south was 
in the common garden was really more active uh, in the total distance it moved and sort of the number of moves that the uh, hatchlings made than the other two groups. Um, but then in the simulated conditions, it was uh, the north was way more active and moved more. So it's kind of this cool thing where the south seemed to be making more active hatchlings in some capacity, but wasn't really relating to cannibalism. And so one of the things they did was they looked at the relationship between these activity measurements and the amount of cannibalism that they saw. And what they saw is across the species, there was a relationship. So the more that the hatchlings from the corresponding egg batches were moving, the more cannibalistic those you know brothers and sisters were. But when they included the latitude that they were collected from as a, another factor, that significant relationship fell apart. So they saw, yes, across the latitude, uh, you were more active in the north and you ate each other more. But within uh, each population, they didn't see that activity cannibalism relationship, which is kind of interesting. So they were trying to see is like, you know, if you're more cannibalistic, you're more active. And that's true across the species, but not in specific uh, smaller geographic areas. So within the same latitude, they're not more cannibalistic for the more active they are? Yeah, well, so you don't get the same relationship. So basically, the effect of latitude on activity and cannibalism is so great, there isn't enough residual variation that they explain each other. So latitude explains both of those really well. And so you don't need to rely on, you know, activity levels to explain cannibalism once you've accounted for latitude. So in the north, they're more active and they're more cannibalistic, but you don't need to have activity levels to explain the more the, the acti increased activity in northern populations isn't uh, related to more cannibalistic uh, egg batches, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So the the latitude is a is a bigger predictor. Yeah. Of cannibalistic behavior. Yeah, and it's it's basically so big that this activity cannibalism relationship that may be there isn't basically recapitulated at smaller geographic scales. So it's it's across the whole region, but you know in France they didn't find evidence that more active damselfly larvae are more cannibalistic. Man, I really wish they did that. The the north, the northern, uh, that feels like something that's necessary. Yeah, no, I I and I get that because as I was reading, I was like ex waiting for it because I I saw that I saw like the abstract and I got excited. I'm like, oh, this is cool. And as I was reading, I'm like, and then they did. Oh, they because it's a it's a pretty common next step. So I imagine like this lab group, it's coming out in the pipeline. They just wanted to get this out for whatever reason because they did find. Uh, pretty definitive that latitude is an induced effect here. They just weren't able to rule out genetic effects yet. So it is cool that that lat and latitude in terms of light, dark cycle, and temperature are what is important here and for showing the seasonality. And the reason I find this paper interesting is uh, 
it relates to uh, global climate change, and they don't talk about this, but it's it's you know biologists talk about this all the time. Uh, as the world gets warmer, the temperature signal is going to start to decouple from the light dark signal. So in this, they were right. still coupled together fine, uh, but our photo periods for our seasons aren't going to change. But it'll be warmer earlier and warmer later in the year, or, you know, we might have weather changing in other ways. So, however, the the damselflies might be using a combination of those two, but it might be relying on, you know, photo period to figure out how much time is left in the season. But if it's warmer longer, the seasons are actually longer. And damselflies, they're predators. So they're a pretty important, you know, predators tend to be important ecosystem members because they eat you know other organisms that are eating plants etc and so anything that could sort of be affecting their population levels like increased or decreased cannibalism could have a pretty important impact on you know the lake ecosystems and the health of those so understanding this is important because our water ecosystems are you know it's it's how we it's a natural water cleaning resource you know you don't want to go drink lake water but if it weren't for the fact that there's living organisms living in there that lake water would get weird and nasty with like bacteria and and you know smaller stuff just sort of growing in there but having an active ecosystem helps keep the water a little cleaner and it helps sort of filter out and process you know some of the pollutants and be able to sort of mediate those so Understanding why an organism might be more cannibalistic can help us understand how, you know, climate change may impact our water ecosystems, you know, since damselflies, and this would presumably hold true for some dragonfly species and, and other sort of aquatic predators and maybe even predators in general. Cool. Right, and we are on to our discussion section. Uh, and this week, uh, Dbeck, you said earlier you're going to talk about chirality, I believe. Yeah. All right. We'll talk about some chirality. So, chirality is 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 one of the most important to- like things that ends up in chemistry and biology. Yeah. So it's a cool thing to talk about on this podcast because I know. I know Turbot has some examples, and he can kind of help probably yeah. with my very light <laughs> amount of examples that I have. That's that's trusted me a little too much, but I'll I'll try it. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully Turbot's got some biology stuff. But I, I so again, I won't go over what chirality is. And it's just chirality is when my mirror images cannot be super. I can't I can't rotate something. So that it looks exactly like its mirror image. And so your hands are chiral. I, if I take both my hands and look at the backs of them, I can't take my right hand and make it look exactly like my left hand. I always end up looking at the front of my right hand and the back of my left hand. Um, if something's two-dimensional, like, or if I have something that's like really symmetric, like a water molecule, mm-hmm. then it's very easy to make the mirror. The mirror image already looks exactly like the other one. Mm-hmm. But if I were to take a water molecule and make one of those H's an F and have FOH mm-hmm. up there, and I have FOH on the other side, 
and I have those mirror images, I can just flip one of them over mm -hmm. and it looks exactly like the other one. So yeah. I can superimpose them just like I can't superimpose my hands. And so when I have something that's chiral, the two different mirror images are referred to as enantiomers. Yep. Um, and that's just a fancy word for saying that the difference between the two things is that they're mirror images of each other. And so it's a more specific term for an isomer, where an isomer is when the only difference between one molecule and another molecule is that the atoms are rearranged. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, when something's chiral, I have to literally pull off an atom, mm -hmm. push an atom over, and then stick the atom back on mm -hmm. in, the, in the location of the one that I just shifted over yeah. to be able to make it look like the other one. Mm -hmm. um, and so th those are what enantiomers are. And some cases, like where this is important, is basically everything. So biology, there's this phenomenon uh, known as the homochirality of life, which is this very cool thing where um, all the amino acids that make up proteins and everything in, in, in your body are what are referred to as L amino acids, which just means it's one mirror image as opposed to the other. So I'll always have, if I, if I put, if I put, one mirror image on the left side and one mirror image on the right side, I always have one of those sides for my amino acids. Mm -hmm. um, so homo, in this case, meaning same. Yeah. Um, and so the L or D is just based on how it looks compared to glyceraldehyde, which is a really simple molecule that has one center in it that's stereogenic, where stereogenic just means that that center is able to be chiral. Because mm -hmm. when I have something really large, like a protein that's made up of a bunch of amino acids, yeah. Um, there's a whole bunch of centers in there that could be shifted yeah. to be D or L mm -hmm. um, based on that. And so the simple way to think about it is just that every single one of those is one of the mirror images and not the other one. And it's always going to be the same one, mm -hmm. not the other one. And so uh, same thing with sugars, except sugars are the opposite. Sugars are always what are called D chiral. Mm -hmm. Sugars are always the op. If, if I were to think of... You know, if I had the if I had like an amino acid and I have one on the left and one on the right, um, and I'm saying that the left one is the one that always occurs in human beings. Um, if I have sugars and I have one on the left and one on the right, the one on the right is the one that always occurs in human beings. Um, and so it's kind of difficult since I'm talking about completely different molecules um, to kind of visualize what it means that they're left or right-handed or the different. L or D, and there's five or six different ways to refer to chirality depending on which field you're in. Yeah. Um, you'll hear like R or S or lowercase L and lowercase D as opposed to my implicit uppercase <laughs> L and uppercase D is what I'm referring to. Um, but there, it, it, it's just it's just ways of saying, do I have the one on the left or do I have the one on the right? It doesn't really matter which one it is specifically. Just understand that it's, it's one of them. Um, and this manifests itself in a lot of ways. Um, one of those is the enzymes, mm -hmm. you know, will always take one of yeah. them. So enzymes are things that act on proteins and ligands. And um, most enzymes will not work at all if something is a D amino acid instead of the L amino acid that it wants mm -hmm. it to be. And it won't. So if I take a synthetic and make synthetic D amino acids, which I can make them and they're stable. Um, same with sugars, I can make L sugars. Um, it's very easy to make L amino acids and L sugars. 
uh, or D amino acids and L sugars, which are the opposite ones of what we want them to be. Um, and they're stable. There's nothing special mm -hmm. about them. It's just life has over time selected L amino acids and D sugars. Yeah. Um, and the implications of this are, are really interesting. A lot like this, it's a mystery. No one knows why well, the, that life has decided to select L amino acids and D yeah. sugars. I, I, yeah, I vaguely remember seeing like some sort of like I, it might have just been a hypothesis that the the chirality of amino acids might have something to do with the way the sunlight is polarized when it comes to Earth. I don't know if if you've heard of that or if that was like a crackpot theory or something. I've never okay. heard that, and I did I did some research into it before yeah. we started, uh, and I've looked into it. Uh, but I, I have okay. never heard that. <laughs> maybe. Um, that's in, it could be, you know, who maybe knows? Maybe I've just made, uh, made it up and, and reconstructed a memory. The, the, closest, the closest thing I've heard to a legitimate theory is something called autocatalysis, okay. which is that. Um, and it kind of gets a little philosophical, so I'll do this, and then we'll, we can talk about cool examples of chirality, because um, this will get heavy for a second. But if I have a reaction happening, and it, the reaction will be what's called racemic, where racemic means it's a mixture of both enantiomers. So the L and the D are both there in equal proportion, 50-50. Um, if I have a reaction in it and I somehow screw with it so that there's a little bit more of the L than there is the D to begin with at the very beginning of the reaction, as the reaction's progressing, then it won't be racemic anymore. And the enantiomeric excess, there will be a lot more L than there will be D. So same with if I were to somehow screw with my experiment to be like, okay, this, this experiment, the way that it goes on, it doesn't select for chirality. There's nothing, there's no receptor that receives one specific end of the molecule. So there's nothing saying that it has to be L when it comes out or it has to be D when it comes out. There's no mechanism for that. If I plant a bunch of my D uh, amino acids in there, or my D whatever I'm doing in there, um, as the reaction begins, I'll end up with a I'll end up with a whole bunch more D than I do L. Um, and this has been for there's a paper in 2004 where they did this with asparagine. Uh, asparagine, I always mispronounce it, um, but it's just an amino acid, um, and they showed that. Indeed, autocatalysis is something that can really yeah. happen. There's a little bit more. So then the question is, well, what made you know what made there be more L than D whenever? Because no one knows when mm -hmm. it happened. You know, the, the, if you go back and you look at microorganisms and things like the homochirality, it goes pretty deep in the evolutionary well. It goes yeah. all the way down. Um, so whenever it happened. Whenever, whatever it was that showed up first, be decided to be L, it's, it's hard to tell when that event happened, but whenever it did, there was a little, there might have been a little more L than there was D, and no one knows what it is that made that happen. People think maybe just the randomness of lightning strikes that came down mm -hmm. on, our, on primitive Earth helped cause more L than D at that time. And, and in reality, the more I thought about it, I, I, started, I started getting all existential. And thinking about like uh, the anthropic principle, which is just like uh, when you're thinking about you know 
We say it's special that there's more L than D because that's how it is. But it's not special because it could have just been D. So it's just one, one of two given possibilities. And in an alternate universe, we very easily could be made of D amino yeah. acids and L sugars instead of L amino acids and D yeah. sugars. Um, so just because we're attaching special meaning to it because we exist and we're able to comment on it doesn't mean that you know in nature there was any special mm -hmm. meaning to it. It just so happened that one of those was selected over the other because of conditions at the time. There's no, nothing special about it. Um, and the anthropic principle is just the idea that, you know, there's all these different factors in our universe that lead to humans existing. Um, like there's like the, uh, what's it called? The, the Goldilocks yeah. theorem that like, you know, the earth is in this habitable zone and it, it's perfectly situated from the sun and there's a perfect amount of albedo so that the rays get reflected perfectly and like all this good stuff that's happening to allow like humankind to be able to exist. And it's just, it's like nature is spinning a roulette wheel and the ball landed somewhere and it landed on humans. And we say that's very important because we had a lot of money on humans coming up on the roulette wheel. Our existence was wagered on it. Um, but in reality, it, did, it doesn't matter to nature where that ball lands. So there was no money on humans. Humans happen yeah. and that's dope and that's very cool. Um, but there's no nothing special about humans happening it's just one one end of the roulette wheel and the ball had to land somewhere um so yes yeah, so that's really depressing <laughs> to think about when you really start to get into it but um I, I, just as i was thinking about homo chirality and i was looking at papers that try to talk about it almost all the time almost all of them have a preface where they mention like the weak anthropic principle or the strong anthropic yeah. there's like 85 anthropic <laughs> principles but it's basically why i explain um, because you know, when you start thinking about this stuff and mess up with your head, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have have some lens to think about it. But one, you know, to get back to the lighter side of things, like one really cool instance of uh, homo chirality being a thing is that our scent receptors are uh, um, chiral. Like everything in us is chiral, and so our scent receptors are chiral, and they expect a certain thing to be in there. And so if you have spearmint. Um, like spearmint gum or what what have you. That is the R form, so one end of one enantiomer of this molecule called carbone. Caraway seeds are the L form or the S form. Oh, geez, R and S. It's the S form of of carbone. So if I have if I draw both of them on and they're mirror images of each other, one of those mirror images smells completely different than the other mirror image. Caraway seeds and spearmint do not smell alike whatsoever. Yeah. So who knows why this has happened? <laughs> but it's very interesting that just the fact that they're mirror images I can't rotate, they're they smell completely different. And then and even like when you consider um that enzymes are always chiral, uh like I had to give a talk on uh this technique called vibrational circular dichroism, which is like a uh um where you take infrared light, like we were yeah. talking about, um, and you can do what's called circular polarization, where you have one wavelength of light that's going, and you can imagine drawing your wave and embedding it in a yeah. piece of paper. If I take another wavelength and I rotate that wavelength so it's perpendicular with that mm -hmm. piece of paper, and I embed them on top of each other, I can end up drawing an electric field gradient where it's just like where the peaks of those yeah. two waves are. Um, 
Now I can draw it clockwise or counterclockwise depending on how the perpendicular one is shifted with respect to the other one. And so all that means is that there's you have a, a, a spiral clockwise, uh, you have a clockwise spiral and a counterclockwise spiral that you can form. So you can have left-handed circularly polarized and right-handed. And all this does is you shoot infrared light at your sample like you always do, except you make sure that it's left circularly polarized. And then you do the experiment again and make sure it's right circularly mm -hmm. polarized. And then you take the two, left mm -hmm. and right, and you subtract the right from the left, or the left from the right, I can't remember, it doesn't matter. Um, and you subtract one from the other. And if something's not chiral, it doesn't care which way it's, it's polarized. And there's some really complicated math as to why it doesn't care. It has to do with the magnetic field around um, that's formed by the electrons going around a specific area. But if it's not chiral, it doesn't care. Um, if it is chiral, it will prefer to absorb one of those more yeah. than the other. And so when you do the left and right experiment, um, what you get are these really like cool to look at plots where all the peaks are equal yeah. and opposite. And you have one red line and one blue line. Um, and that's exactly what they did in the previous experiment yeah. we talked about. And so that's how you can differentiate different isomers. Yeah. And there are other ways to do it as well, like uh, chromatography, which we talked about yeah. in the last episode. Um, and uh, it's incredibly important. Because um, like I, well, so this talk I gave, I, I, I started out by, by mentioning this, uh, I can't remember the name of it. I think it's called Darunovar. It was a blood yeah. pressure drug. Um, I, I, or heart, I can't remember what it was, some, some drug. And I showed it up and I was like, peak sales, of this drug were, you know, a hundred million dollars. And, um, this is what it looks like. And then it's an antimer, uh, peak sales was nothing. It, it didn't make anything cause no, it doesn't right. do anything. Uh, so it's really important in the medical trade to be able to differentiate between those. And one really grim example of that is there's this drug called uh, thalidomide, which, you know, is like the favorite thing to bring up um, when people are talking about chirality, which is like this uh, mm -hmm. sedative, um, and it was used as a treatment mm -hmm. for nausea, uh, released in like 1957, yep. and then they released it. They didn't really like they knew about chirality, but they didn't know it was yeah. super important. Um, so they released it, and then between 1957 and 1961. There were 10,000 infants who were born with this, this limb condition called phocomelia, um, where the, the limbs are formed abnormally and they, they can yeah. die. And so half those kids died. So it caused 5,000 deaths at least um, because one form of thalidomide, one enantiomer, is the thing that's good for nausea and sedatives. The other form causes phocomelia. Yeah. And causes, uh, and it's what's called teratogen, which which causes malformations in uh, pregnant women. Um, and what I thought was interesting, it's like we always learned. I learned this in organic chemistry when I was a kid, uh, or when I was a kid, when I was an undergrad. Um, and uh, it, it's everyone's favorite go-to. And I so I looked into it a little bit more because I was like, that's that's pretty cool. I wonder, like, you know, if they fixed it, if they just like, you know went and were able to separate it out and said, okay. Um, turns out that thalidomide is kind of weird in the sense that when, once you have it in vivo, once you have it in a person, yeah. um, it's able to react with itself to become racemic again. Oh, so if no. I select for only the D thalidomide, um, then I put it into a person 
and the pH and all the different effects, yeah. it's able to rearrange so that it strikes a balance to be 50-50 again because it will react with itself. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how they figured that out. That that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, like, you'll always have the baby-killing stuff. Yeah. Um, and if you have any enantiomer of thalidomide. Um, but it's still used, you know, if it's not a pregnant woman, right. then it's okay. Yeah. Um, so it's still used as a treatment for my least favorite disease, which is leprosy. <laughs> It's, it's used as a treatment for complications with leprosy. You can find it on the market as immunoprin or Talidex. Yeah. So if you're separate, suffering from complications with leprosy, just know that, you know, if you're a pregnant woman, you shouldn't take it. And that this is now yeah. you know why. And you can sound like a real um, yeah. know-it-all. So, <laughs> well, you were waxing poetic on, on the randomness of us developing our specific sugar and amino acid chiralities. I wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy, and uh, I found an old Nature News article from 2000, and since it was published in Nature, you know it has to be 100% correct. <laughs> but it, it, uh, it, it, it basically says, yeah, it is all random, but the, the th- and I'll, I'll, if I remember, I'll put this in the show notes too, uh, but basically it's, um, it's the idea that if, forming amino acids had a light dependent step then if there was a polarized light conditions <laughs> then that could have favored a certain chirality which then seeded a certain uh enantiomer for amino acids and then the yeah. other thing there is even in the absence of polarized light magnetic fields can sort of cause a polarization and so I'm not completely crazy in that light maybe is important. No, no, I, it, yeah. it's possible. And here's the thing I was thinking about while I was talking was that like, it, it's possible that the, I don't know how Earth's yeah. atmosphere, this is completely oh, yeah. off top, but like, I don't know how Earth's atmosphere selects uh, what polarities of light yeah. come through. I always assumed that it was just yeah. the whole, the whole shebang that wasn't selected um at all but it's possible that magnetized particles in yeah. the air from different that that certain polarities yeah. are selected um and it's possible i know that there were more magnetized particles yeah. in the air previously because it, it yeah. was a much harsher environment um so there's more metal yeah. in the air so it's it's highly possible that it was selecting for a different so for a certain yeah. polarity um, that favored a certain type of light yeah. and then caused that autocatalytic effect to happen. But it, it's still pretty much completely by chance, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Is, that's the important thing. Everything in the world is by chance. There's, there's no greater meaning. And thalidomide is, is used <laughs> to treat leprosy. It's the key takeaways. Um, I actually... Uh, while talking about chirality, I have an interesting uh, sort of bio fact. Um, this was uh, told to me by someone who who knows what they're talking about, but I might get some details wrong because I'm now repeating it secondhand. Um, but uh, so I work with sawflies and another uh, group of sawflies that's found in Australia. So pergid sawflies that feed on eucalyptus, they have a defense where they make the um, the opposite, the enantiomer forms of some amino acids as sort of a toxic defense. And apparently what will happen is, um, you know, they have these colonies and they're feeding and 
there's certain viruses that hits uh, these sawflies, like our sawflies, and then they get into a colony and they just like wipe it out. And what happens with these sawflies is they all die and they sort of like start to like decompose in like a pile at the bottom of like eucalyptus trees, and it's like a like a sticky black mass and it smells terrible. But the the terrible part is apparently cows go crazy for it. So they go over and they like fight each other to like eat it and then they die. <laughs> they get sick and die because <laughs> it's filled with these enantiomer, uh, enantiomeric amino acids from the sawflies. So uh, it's just for whatever reason and maybe it has something to do with this, the, the amino acids. But the, the cows love decomposing sawfly jelly and it that's kills crazy. Them. Yeah. That's interesting because because as far and it's possible that there are receptors in cow like as far as yeah. I know, I thought that you know it was just harmless. If you have, it, yeah. it's not like you're going to get screwed up if you take the uh, um, the D form of amino acids and and you have a cup of it and you drink it. It's yeah. it's fine. You, it can pass through you. Yeah. You just won't be able to mess with it. Your body won't be able to break it down or, or do things with it. There was a uh, there was a a, a horrible. Um, sci-fi book uh, that I thought was just the craziest when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna try to find it now. Um, but like where the idea was, there were uh, there was an alien race that came down um, that had different the different different enantiomer of uh, like they were D-based amino acids, and so they. They drank like a cup of our water with stuff in it, and then uh, um, died, uh, and then that's a thing. Um, yeah. And I think that was in like an Alice in Wonderland thing where they talked about it too. Yeah. Um, but oh shoot, there's a there's a whole page chemical chirality in popular fiction on Wikipedia. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, Lewis Carroll contains a prescient reference to the deferring biological activities of enantiomeric drugs. Perhaps looking glass milk isn't good to drink, Alice said to her cat. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Arthur C. Clarke. Okay, so I can't say it was bad yeah. if it's Arthur C. Clarke, who's right. like the the father of modern sci-fi. Yeah. But talking about someone who turns into, goes through a mirror because he's next to a superconducting generator, and he's starving. Oh, okay. Well, this isn't bad. He's starving because he has a healthy diet, Yeah. but... The amino acids are switched, so they can't break them down. Yeah. Um, Asimov wrote about it too. Wow. Yeah. All the all the big sci-fi names. Yeah, the big guys. Yeah. It was in Mass Effect. Yeah. I wonder if uh, what's his name? The Ron Hubbard. I wonder if Ron Hubbard ever wrote about it. As far as I know, it doesn't look like it on yeah. here. But he was a blowhard. I'm sure he had something to say about it. <laughs> But we mean no fight with the Church of Scientology that'll be listening to our podcast, I'm sure, and scouring yeah, the internet for... No, I have, I have nothing against Scientologists. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, so things have gone silly. <laughs> Sorry. Um, hey, no, I, it's okay. I, I, I kind of like it. I, I like getting the discussion a little more relaxed. We'll see. Maybe, maybe it'll be terrible. We'll find out. But Yeah. All right, 
So we're now in our acknowledgement section uh, where we talk about uh, non-science stuff that me and Dbeck get up to to help keep ourselves sane. Uh, and, you know, I guess maybe uh, judging from our discussion section, maybe we haven't been doing these enough because we got <laughs> in some weird sidetracks in the discussion on chirality. But um, I don't know what you intended to bring, but... Uh, in the last episode, you mentioned having your uh, martial arts tournament, which I know you had yesterday. And so, uh, if you're willing, I want you to give a listener's uh, tournament report, 500-word uh, minimum, double space. <laughs> yeah, so, well, so I originally had, uh, the original plan was to go to a tournament three weeks ago. Yeah. But I, uh, like the week before that, you know, I was at weight. I, I, I was cutting down 20 pounds to get to yeah. my weight and um, not cutting. I, I was just yeah. on a diet. Right. Uh, but I was at weight and everything and I, I was cooking um, mm -hmm. and I was making a steak um, the same way I made a steak the last, you know, 20 times I made a steak mm -hmm. and um, wasn't paying attention and flipped the steak in the oil um, mm -hmm. towards me with uh, with spatula instead of using tongs. I splashed it all over my hand. Oh, got, like okay. gross blisters, terrible, and so I wasn't able to go to that tournament. Yeah. And so I wanted to go to that one because there's no time limit and things, and it, it fit my my whole style of jujitsu better. Um, <laughs> and so jujitsu is like wrestling. Yeah. You know, and you're trying to trying to get catch somebody in a submission where you're trying to yeah. choke or or <clears throat> move someone's limb in a way it's not supposed to move. Right. Um, and so the way I like to play fits better with like mm -hmm. no time limit. Right. Um. But so I wasn't able to go to that one. But then yeah. there's one in Indianapolis yesterday, and I was able to go. Yeah. And so I went there, and and the way it worked was the there's two two divisions. There's gi and there's no gi. Um, gi is like the uniform that you wear, um, the stereotypical like Karate Kid stuff. Right. Um, and so I went and I lost my first gi match, um, and. Uh, it was close, but then in the end, he was able to pass my guard and, and, and get me. Yeah. Um, and then there were only four people in my division, uh -huh. so I had to go do a bronze medal match, um, yeah. and that was against the the person who got me into jujitsu. Oh no! <laughs> so he's been doing jujitsu for five years. He's still a white belt with me because my our gym promotes really slowly. Um, <laughs> that's known as like in jujitsu. It's usually a lot slower between belts anyway. Right. Uh, but he's much better than me. I've never right. and I train with him, so he knows yeah. what I do. And yeah. So <laughs> he got he got two points because um, he did something early, and then I was in my A game. I was where I wanted to be. Yeah. But I couldn't get him. He stalled me out, and he told me yeah. afterwards. He's like, "Man, I stalled you. I'm sorry." I'm like, "Oh, you yeah. son of a bitch." So. <laughs> um, uh, but it was funny because like all our coaches and everything, everyone was silent for our match. Like no one yeah. wanted to yell or do anything. But like right. I got I got my guard and my friend James was like, "Good job!" And, like I was like, "Shh, can't say stuff." So, <laughs> um, and then That's great. after that was the uh, nogi, um, where you're yeah. just wearing like athletic clothes. And yeah. so for the nogi divisions for this tournament, they they instead of saying white belt or blue belt or whatever. Yeah. They say one to four years for intermediate. Okay. Um, so I've been doing it for a little over a year. Yeah. So I ended up going up against, and they condensed weight classes too. So oh, no. they're <laughs> So I was in the 170 weight class, and they condensed yeah. the 180, um, 180 to one like 
95 weight class too. Mm-hmm. So I went up against a heavy blue belt, um, and he whooped me. So yeah. I wasn't able to get get my stuff working, and so I lost. But um, not a lot's expected your first tournament. Yeah. Um, so I learned a lot about what yeah. I want to do for my game plan. There's another tournament yeah. in November I really want to go to. So nice. I'm going to try yeah. to train and change my game plan a little bit and tweak it to make it work. Uh, yeah. But it was a good time. I'm sore. Yeah. I, I feel like garbage. But it was a, <laughs> my neck is killing me. Cause like, yeah. But uh, it was good. It was a good time. Uh, yeah. I'm really happy I did it. Is is that what you wanted to talk about uh, this episode, or do you have something else? Yeah, I know. And then last night was the Mayweather McGregor fight, which for oh, me yeah. was crazy. Yeah, everyone, you... everyone's taking the cool position now, where everyone was like, "Let's not watch it because you know you're giving them money." But, but it was right. a good fight. Yeah, it was a legitimately good boxing match. I feel like Conor McGregor did a lot better than I thought he was going to, and. I've I've purposely been avoiding the spin because I don't want to have to read all this stuff. But like, oh yeah, you know, I think I've gotten all spin and no substance on the fight. It's just all the you know the like you said the reasons like to not support it because their personal lives are not dignified. I guess we'll say. <laughs> well, Mayweather's personal life's not dignified. McGregor really yeah. hasn't done anything wrong. Okay. Um, there's there's there there are allegations of racism yeah. because of something he said during the the, but you know, they're hyping a fight and he also because he said dance boy dance that that's oh, what people yeah. were mad about, um, because and but Mayweather was dancing in front of him, mm-hmm. so I don't I don't think you know, if that's the worst thing he did I don't think that's an issue yeah um so much like at, in comparison to Floyd Mayweather who yeah. beats his women. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. which is a known thing. So Conor McGregor, I I respect Conor McGregor. He comes from a really shitty part of Ireland, yeah, um, and a really really gang infested place, yeah. and he made it out. Um, so as someone who comes from like poverty myself, I I really yeah. look like I find that really inspiring. Yeah. He comes from very very bad social situations, yeah, and you don't see that written about a lot, but it it was it was. It was a very good and technical fight. That's um, so, yeah, it was a yeah. good boxing match. It was better than the other boxing matches on that card. Yeah. So, cool between all all boxers. So. Yeah, and uh, I guess for the, this episode, uh, since I've been doing a lot of field work, when I'm out in field work, it's like ninety percent driving, like for hours a day going between different field sites. So I rely a lot on other podcasts. Uh, so even though all these other podcasts I listen to have much greater <laughs> listenerships, uh, I figured I'd just go ahead and, and uh, throw out some of the some of the ones I like that I've been listening to. So uh, earlier in the year, I found this podcast called Tannis, which is sort of a, a fiction podcast, but it, it's sort of presented as sort of a documentary about like a mysterious area in the Pacific Northwest forest with like weird magic properties. Um, and, uh, I really enjoy the, um, the website crack.com's been putting out a few different podcasts now, and I usually enjoy those, although sometimes their phrasing of biology kind of, I'm like, that's not quite right, but, but they're pretty good. And, uh, I guess, uh, another classic is, uh, how did this get made, which, uh, is just, uh, 
uh, few movie podcast. Yeah, it's a movie podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, what about you? What's what sort of podcast do you do you rock out to? I'm a big fan of the Flop House, which is All another right. movie podcast. It has two yeah. people who wrote for the Daily Show on there. Oh, cool. And then I've been listening to uh, the Adventure Zone, uh, which is a D and D podcast. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Where, one. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, if you've heard of my brother, my brother and me, it's the McGow. Yeah. Well, the McElroy boys, uh, who yeah. are three brothers, and yeah. their dad, they play D and D together, and uh-huh. they they just did a, uh, um, they finished their whole arc, just their last yeah. their last episode, and oh, cool. it turned into this like really emotional and like oh, really wow. really well written like thing. Yeah. The the DM was like really good, and like they turned it into this whole thing, and yeah. it it's really good. Like I I teared nice. up a little bit oh, when I was wow. listening to it. I was like, oh, geez. So it's, yeah. it was kind of beautiful and good and like yeah. a lot better than I thought a D&D podcast yeah. would, would be because yeah. there's did another one listen? called Nerd Poker. Yeah, I was about to ask, funny. did you also? Yeah, because yeah, I, I also listened to that. They uh, they finished up, right? They aren't back because I haven't. Yeah, I, I I stopped listening to them a while back. Uh, yeah. Brian Posehn does it and he's awesome. And then so yeah. does, uh, um, I forget his name, but he wrote Deadpool for a little while. Jerry yeah. something. Yeah. Um, but... Like, yeah, no, that's really good. That's yeah, more are, humor. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah Adventure Zone funny. is funny. It's a very yeah. funny podcast, but, man, yeah. it, it gets it gets deep. Yeah, it's a good, I, I got to check it out. Yeah, I'll have to keep that one in mind. Because, like I said, when I'm, when I'm doing my field work, it's a lot of driving. So having, like, a podcast to, like, binge is really nice. Uh, sometimes I do... That's aud- a good one. Yeah, I do audiobooks, too. Uh, so, like, for four years, I've been working through, like, the Game of Thrones like audiobooks and i finally like finished those uh like back in may and so i was like i need podcasts to binge so cool i need to remember adventure zone so i can binge listen to that the next time i have to be driving for like 12 also hours another a day. good one if you if you like if you like professional wrestling you can listen to tights and fights with right. uh acclaimed rapper open mike eagle um <laughs> It's it's a good it's the best wrestling podcast. It's the only wrestling podcast I've found that like I don't hate listening okay. to. Like it's a good podcast. Like it sounds yeah. I'm not saying that they're they're I, I I'm not saying they're mildly tolerable. It's just like every yeah. other wrestling podcast I do find intolerable. Um oh, so I don't I don't watch wrestling anymore, but yeah. like I like listening to them talking about they they mention, you know, putting people over and like yeah. heel to face turns and like okay. it's a very technical wrestling podcast. It's very good. <laughs> So. technical wrestling heel and face turns well because well, it, it's it's all about the, the you know they understand the business yeah. aspect of it right and they covered the lucha underground recently which was oh uh, cool that is cool the, the uh um what's his name um el rey uh robert rodriguez's wrestling pro- lucha wrestling promotion oh cool um uh, which is amazing yeah so they got ray mysterio for it you know nice. chavo guerrero's over there yeah it's good it's a good. It's right. a good. I I highly recommend Lucha Underground. That's why I was going to talk about. Oh, was Lucha yeah. Underground. All right. Um, it's a good. It's the best wrestling promotion I've seen. Right. Uh, recently. Cool. I need to check that. I've been I've been wanting to get into wrestling because it just seems like a fun, uh, fun. It's thing so to get much into. fun. So I'll, I'll have to check. It's out so much fun. Lucha Underground. Yeah, and they have yeah. mystic stuff in it. You know, there's a dragon man oh, and like oh, an immortal perfect. like. Being, yeah, this, it's oh, awesome. That sounds awesome. They, they they don't they don't care. Like they just make it <laughs> yes. just the most ludicrous, and the matches That's, are good. 
that's what I want. Are really fun to watch. Yeah. All right. Awesome. All right. Well, I think I think we'll call that a show. Um, I meant to like get a uh, an actual like thing written up to say it in the show, and I didn't. But I am going to remember to ask people listening to follow us on Twitter. Uh, uh, I believe we're norm sci normal science cast. Uh, I should have looked it up. We have a Twitter? Yeah, we have a Twitter. Yeah. Uh, uh, shit. Um, and and uh, I I've like posted on it once. So well, I guess what's more important is find us on Facebook at normal you know normal science podcast. Um, follow us on Stitcher. Uh, hopefully in the next month I'll figure out how to get us up on iTunes. So that'll be cool. Um, and you know if you like our show. Tell your friends and family about it uh, so we can get some more listeners and, you know, spread the word of how uh, all science is awesome and interesting and valuable. And uh, until next month, uh, stay curious, everybody.